Good morning, everyone. Uh, yeah, as, as Ben's already said, we are on with our series, The King and His Army. In the first two talks, Joe focused on the king and the good news about the kingdom. Isn't it great? We're hearing about the kingdom at work this morning through all that Cap is doing. This morning, we are looking at his army. So if we could have the uh, Psalm 24, please. There we go. So I'd, I'd like this to be a kind of altogether thing, get you guys working here as well. So passages in red, we will read all together, and then I'll ask the questions. Okay? So why don't we stand up and let's, let's do this all together. Are you ready? Yeah. Do this with gusto. <laughs> Open up, you ancient gates. Open up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The, the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, invincible in battle. Open up, you ancient gates. Open up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of heaven's armies. He is the King of glory. Oh, let's say that last line again like you mean it. Come on. The Lord of heaven's armies. He is the King of glory. Great. Give yourselves a round of applause. Sit down. Heaven's armies. I think I just, we, we just need to kind of make this point at the beginning. Include a multitude of angels at the service of heaven's king. And we get glimpses of them here and there in the, in the New Testament. Like when the, uh, when the shepherds were there and suddenly there's a host of angels announcing uh, that uh, a king has been born in Bethlehem. Or again, we see when Jesus was arrested... And one of his disciples grabs a sword and, and, and tries to leap to his defense. And, and he says, put away your sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father? And he will at once put 12 legions of angels or more at my disposal. So the, the army of the king includes unnumbered battalions of heavenly beings, of angels. Um, but... He also has boots on the ground, if we can put it that way, here on planet Earth. Who is that? That's the church of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to be focusing on this morning. Now, I think maybe past generations have been more familiar with the idea of the church being an army. We used to sing hymns like, stand up, stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross, or Onward Christian soldiers marching us to war, or one of my own favorite soldiers of Christ, arise and put your armor on. We even had kids' songs, like, what was that one we used to sing? I'm too young to march with the infantry, <laughs> ride with the cavalry, shoot with the artillery, but I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, yes sir! Do you remember that one? So, the church is a vital part of the army of King Jesus. We have boots on the ground in the service of the King of Kings. But we always need to bear in mind this, that, that God's King established His rule not by military force, but by laying down His life. So we should expect 
his army to operate unlike any other army. So it was a tragedy when, when the church becomes caught up in, you know, militaristic activities uh, and lends its support to kind of, you know, nationalism or military power struggles or whatever. We see that happening a bit the way that uh, the church, the Orthodox Church in Russia has kind of given its support to the war in Ukraine at the present time. And, you know, all empires and all nations have been guilty of that from time to time. It is always, always a mistake. So while we, um, in, the New, in the Old Testament, we see the people of God, we do see them engaged in physical warfare. Now, in this age, in the age of the New Covenant, the kind of warfare that we are engaged in is less obvious, but it's just as real. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians 6 verse 12. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, in other words, against other people, against human beings, but against the rulers, uh, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Reality consists of both of what is seen and what is unseen. It's unseen, but it is just as real. And in the unseen spiritual realm, a war has been waged between the kingdom of God and the dominion of darkness. And here's the thing. We are all participants in this war. It's not limited to some elite fighting force of believers with a particular set of skills. But all of us, who, as we seek to be faithful to Jesus, to live for Him, uh, as we seek to advance the gospel, as we, as, we, as we long to see the kingdom breaking into people's lives in the way that we've been hearing about this morning already, as we, as we seek to see the church being built to the glory of God, then we will find ourselves caught up in a conflict. And this word struggle that Paul uses, it depicts a kind of wrestling match, it's not like firing missiles at distant targets, but it's more like hand-to-hand combat. And Paul doesn't say that, that, you know, that that's something that was happening or will be happening. He says, is, our struggle is. We are in a continuous struggle. Um, it's part of our life as Christians. The only question that we need to ask really is, how are we engaging with that reality. That's what I want to look at this morning. What does it look like to be on active service in the king's army? And there are 10 things. I'll cover them each briefly. Don't worry. <laughs> 10 things that I would like us to consider. The first one is this. It is a volunteer army. Psalm 110 verses 1 to 3 the Lord says to this is the Lord, as in, you know, Yahweh, says to my Lord, this is David saying this. This is a remarkable saying. So this is like the father saying to the son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing 
on your day of battle. Psalm 110 is the, most, is the psalm that's most quoted by the New Testament writers. And it describes the reality that we are living in now, today. Jesus has won the decisive victory through his death and resurrection, right? He has right now been exalted to the right hand of the Father, the highest place of, the place of highest honor in the universe. And God is working to subdue all his enemies. And it's like these spiritual forces of resistance, uh, sp- spiritual forces of darkness are resisting, but they know that the end is approaching. But the key point that I want to draw from this passage is that the king's army is made up of willing volunteers. There is no conscription into the king's army. It's like what happens is the eyes of your heart are opened to all that Jesus has done for you, to how much Jesus loves you. And and your response is, now I want to follow him. Now I want to give my life to serving Jesus. That is the starting point. And uh, just be aware, in a sense, that there is no neutral position. It's um, in this war that there is that's raging, that we're all caught up in, there is no equivalent of being Swiss. You can't just kind of opt out of it. It's uh, you're either serving Jesus or you're, you're serving some other God. Your heart is given to some other God, whether you realize it or not. Now, maybe you're thinking this morning, there is no way that Jesus would want me in his army. But listen, Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never turn away. There are no rejects. Whoever comes to me, he will never turn away. So to serve in his army, you can have flat feet, round shoulders, you can be overweight, underachieving, you can be short-sighted or long in the tooth. The only requirement is that you come to Jesus and put your trust in him. That's it. So, have you taken that step? That is the first step to becoming part of the king's army. If you haven't, then there is no better time than this morning. But listen, it's your choice. Second point, the second thing that it looks like to be part of the king's army is that you have pledged your allegiance to the king. And when you, when you join the armed forces, at least in this country, you pledge allegiance to the king, don't you? That's what they do. I think even the police forces do that as well. They pledge allegiance to the, to the king, to the queen, to the king now. For us, that's part of what it means to be baptized. So in baptism, you identify with the death, with the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. You are a new creation. Your past is behind you, and now your identity is found in him. It's not just a ceremonial or a symbolic thing. It is, in part, a declaration of whose side you are on. And it's a declaration not just to the friends and family who are there to witness the event. It's actually a declaration to the heavenly realms as well. Whether we realize it or not, we are being watched 
by both sides in this conflict. For that reason, early church baptism rituals included a renunciation of Satan and his angels. Baptism is, say, is a way of saying that you are going all in for Jesus. It's a pledge of allegiance. Have you been baptized? That is another key step to being on active service for the King of Kings. Thirdly, you undergo training, don't you? The aim of training is not just, you know, in the army, it's not just about getting physically fit and being tough or whatever. It's about a change of mindset, changing your mindset from that of a civilian to that of a soldier. And uh, how does that apply to us? Well, Paul writes to his younger friend, Timothy, you then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Now, this word gets involved here. It kind of means entangled. It means you're preoccupied with the affairs of life. Making a living, advancing your career, bringing up children, planning your next holiday. There's nothing wrong with these things. They're an important part of life, um, but they are not everything. We are called to be part of a bigger cause, spreading the good news. We have a mission. We'll be saying more about that next week. But we have a, a mission to spread the good news of God's kingdom. Bringing about that change of mindset, however, does involve taking on board certain disciplines and practices, doesn't it? It's just like not just opting for the easy or the comfortable life, no longer living just to please ourselves. For us, that means the kind of practices that our elders have been encouraging us to cultivate, like feeding on God through His words, fasting, gathering with others to share a meal, the practice of prayer, praying together, all of these things. They might feel like a duty at first, but over time, they will produce a change of mindset. And that, in turn, will lead to changed lives. But here's the important thing. We need to understand it's not us trying really hard that brings that change about it is becoming strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It's by grace, not by us trying to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. The training that we need, I think, is just summed up beautifully by Jesus in Matthew 11. He says this. This is the message. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. So Jesus isn't barking at you like some sergeant major. You horrible little man, you! <laughs> He's saying, come, keep company with me, walk with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. 
Fourthly, you are deployed. The aim of training isn't just to stop there. The aim of training is to prepare you for active service, right? So when soldiers are, are deployed, they don't kind of get to choose for themselves where they serve. They're assigned a role. Likewise, in church, we are assigned by God to different roles according to the gifts that he imparts to us. So as Paul puts it in Romans 12, if your gift is prophesying, then use it in proportion to your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's leadership, then, then lead diligently. If it's encouraging, then encourage. If it's showing mercy, then do it cheerfully, and so on and so on. In other words, don't compare yourself to other people. Don't worry about what they're doing. You just get on and do what God has assigned you to do. So, uh, you know, as the, as the old Nike symbol put it, just do it. Just do it. But number five, don't do it on your own. Okay? That's a big mistake. In so many war movies, I don't know if you know this, but there's usually one amazing guy who single-handedly, against all the odds, defeats the bad guys and wins his bride. Makes great movies, but real life isn't like that. Uh, you know, in the king's army, there is only one hero, and it's not me, and it's not you. As far as we are concerned, none of us is the full package, right? We need input from other people. We need the safety of team. We are called to be a band of brothers and sisters too, of course. And if we become isolated, then that makes us very vulnerable to attack, which leads us on to number six. Know your enemy. Now, if he was as easy to recognize as that, it would make things so much easier, wouldn't it? The problem is that, as Paul puts it, Satan masquerades as an angel of light. And that's why we get taken in. We need to discern what spirit is at work in any situation. You know, a, I don't know if you've ever come across one of these scams where it's like everything looks right. You know, all just seems to fit in, but there's just a little niggle there. Is, is this real? You know, is, so, is someone writing to me from Nigeria to offer me 12 million pounds if I just <laughs> reply to this? <laughs> we need to learn to pay attention to these niggles, don't we? Two, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, for we are not unaware of the devil's schemes. Oh, I wish that was true. He catches us out time and time again, doesn't he? Because he is, he is the arch deceiver. He is the father of lies. He is a thief. He is the accuser. He is a murderer from the beginning. And he robs and discourages and intimidates and sows division. And you know, one of the one of the greatest dangers that soldiers face on the battlefield is so-called 
friendly fire, when their fellow soldiers mistake them for the enemy. And one of the devil's most successful strategies, time and time again, is to get Christians to turn their fire on each other. Tragic, isn't it? But we see it happening time and again. So we need what the armed forces call situational awareness. The Bible calls discerning of spirits. Listen, we don't want to make the mistake of blaming everything on the devil. The truth is we can mess things up pretty well without any help <laughs> a lot of the time. But Peter tells us in his first letter, he says, you know, be alert. Be alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I don't know if you watch those David Attenborough programs on TV. <laughs> you see these poor, unsuspecting gazelles or whatever, and there's this crawling through the grass. <laughs> here's this thing coming. And I'm sitting there going, oh, no, look out. You want to shout, run. You know, look out. It's just this horrible. I, just, I hate that. I can't stand it. Some poor thing's about to be ripped to shreds. But that's what it's like. You know, you just, we, he, it's, yeah, we just need to be alert. Seven, use your weapons. So, you know, I realize that if we look at the church from a human point of view, we probably don't look like a crack fighting outfit, do we? But the reality is we are engaged in a war that only we can fight. Only the church can fight it because only we have the weapons that are needed. The question is, are we using them? Because unused weapons don't win wars, do they? The will and the ability to use our weapons is what warfare is about. We see that right now in Ukraine, don't we? And it's true of spiritual warfare also. So with that in mind, let's just think, think for a minute or two, what weapons do we have? Ephesians 6 verse 11, Paul says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Uh, he goes on to identify what that armor consists of. So come on, tell me, what does the armor of God consist of? Helmet of salvation. Helmet of salvation. Breastplate. Breastplate of righteousness. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Shield of faith. The belt of truth. Your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of them who bring good news, proclaiming God is King. And also there's praying in the Spirit. Is that? That's in there as well. But that's well done, yeah. So the emphasis here is not entirely, but it's mainly on weapons of defense, which enable us to stand firm under attack, not to buckle under pressure. That's, that's important um, because one of the enemy's main tactics, isn't it, is to get believers to, to just become so discouraged that they go away wall. They just kind of 
step out of the conflict. And no wonder that we are told to encourage one another daily. But we also have weapons that are more offensive in nature, weapons that we can fight back with. Uh, 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says, though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Strongholds are those parts of human life that are enemy, under enemy control, in opposition to God and to his kingdom. There can be strongholds in cultures, ideologies that blind people to the truth. There can be strongholds in government, strongholds in nations, strongholds in the minds of individuals, including ourselves, strongholds of fear, negativity, passivity, unbelief. Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. I was just chatting to someone this morning that recognized they had kind of had like a stronghold of fear that was operating, that was kind of ruling their minds, and someone prayed for them, and that, that was just like broken. And, and it's no longer there, just kind of, you know, driving everything that they do. So what are the weapons, to think about this, that God has given us to demolish strongholds? Let's hear you. Prayer, absolutely, yeah. The Word of God, yes, when Jesus, when, you know, when the devil came to him and tempting him, it is written, it is written, it is written. The Word of God has power to, to bring down strongholds, yeah. Worship, Worship is, uh, yeah, I believe that's a really, a really important one. We are called first not to be warriors, but to be worshipers. And in some ways, who and what is worshipped is what this whole thing, this war is about anyway. Anything else? Praise and thanksgiving. Praise and thanksgiving, yeah. Sorry, fasting, yeah, yeah. This kind does not go out but by prayer and fasting, yeah. Our testimony, yep, yeah. absolutely. Good. What about some of the spiritual gifts like prophecy and words of knowledge and miraculous gifts, all these things too can be important in, in revealing truth and in bringing down wrong ways of thinking and, and wrong ways of seeing things, strongholds that, that get rid of us. Listen, this is a big subject. We are just touching on it today, but if you want to understand more about strongholds and how we can use the weapons that God gives us, I recommend this book, Demolishing Strongholds. It's been around for quite a few years by David Devonish. I think you can still get hold of it um, secondhand or whatever. So have a look at that. Let me just pause here. We've still got three points. Um, but I just want to ask you a question. So far from what we've looked at, would you say that you are on active service? 
in the king's army. Your allegiance is not in doubt. You're walking with Jesus and learning from him. You are serving along with others in the role that God has assigned to you. You realize that we have an enemy and that you are making use of at least some of the weapons that God has given us. Now, if that describes you and from what I know of you, I believe that does describe many of you, then be encouraged. You are part of the king's army. But one of the things I think we're sensing and I sense happening at the present time is that as a church, this is a time for us to move from maybe a kind of more defensive posture into a more offensive posture, to get kind of more on the front foot um, in this whole area of spiritual warfare. Some of the things that we're doing, like planting a congregation in chapel fields, the whole vision for the atrium and so on and so forth, those are all things that are a more offensive approach. And I think that's great. And, and I, I would just like us, I just want to suggest that we just think about this as a, as a church, how we can, you know, how we for ourselves can, can be part of a more offensive approach to spiritual warfare. Take the battle to the enemy, in a sense. That's something I'm going to suggest that you might like to discuss in your life groups this week. So to give you some fuel for thought, I've got three final points about how we can go on the offensive, what that looks like. The first thing, number eight, it's all for love's sake, right? It's not about being aggressive. Yeah, it's not about, you know, beating people up with the gospel or whatever the case may be. Going on the offensive means love in action. It's that because we love people, we want them to know that there's a God who loves them. A God who laid down his life for them so that they can be saved and set free and find hope and healing in him. The army of King Jesus, I love this, it's the only army whose commanding officer tells us to love our enemies, right? I can't imagine there's any other army where that's what they're told to do. Nowhere in the New Testament is the church encouraged to take up arms or to act in a hostile way. That is not the MO of Jesus. He laid down his life for his friends and for his enemies. In his kingdom, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. But let's be honest, to live that way is not easy. So, number nine, our king tells us to have courage. You know, when the disciples were in a storm and they were afraid they would drown, Jesus tells them, take courage. I'm here. Don't be afraid. When Joshua was about to lead Israel into the promised land, three times God says to him, be strong and courageous for the Lord your God is with you. Why do you think he said that to him three times? Because he didn't feel very strong or very courageous. Courage is not the absence of fear. It's, it's not allowing fear to rule us. It's been said that faith is spelt R-I-S-K. 
and taking risks. You know what that requires? A little bit of courage, doesn't it? A little bit of courage. The key, I think, is to know that the Lord, our God, is with us. He is with us. And he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And the other reason that we can take courage, this is the last point, number 10, is because the victory is already won. Yeah? Jesus says to us, take heart, I have overcome the world. The death and resurrection of Jesus was the crushing defeat of Satan that God spoke about way back in the Garden of Eden when he told Satan that the seed of the woman would crush his head. That's when that war began, and in a very real way, it was finished on a cross. That's what Jesus said. It is finished. Colossians 2 puts it this way, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. When Jesus was killed on the cross, Satan thought he had won. But in the wisdom and glory of God, it proved to be his downfall. So the phase of the war that we are that we're in now, it's like kind of World War II after D-Day. It's about pressing home the victory. The outcome wasn't in question, but there was still a lot of fighting to do. The victory still had to be pressed home. And so listen, we will not win every battle. You know, the kingdom is now, but it's also not yet. But we know how the war will end. <laughs> That's an amazing thing, isn't it? And it's nothing less than the return of God's rightful king. Here's how that is described in Revelation 19. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He is dressed in a robe dipped in his own blood, and his name is the Word of God, and the armies of heaven were following him. Read on if you want to see what happens. But I tell you what, you will be glad that you are on the same side as these bad boys. <laughs> you really will. <laughs>